Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. In this episode, I'd like to focus a little bit of attention on the concept of worldview. There are a lot of Christian books being written on that topic, and you hear the term worldview thrown around quite a bit, but different authors and speakers have different definitions of the idea, which is a relatively new philosophical concept. And so I think a little bit of clarity on the subject and defining what we mean by worldview, and particularly connecting this philosophical idea with scripture, will help us to think about how we as Christians should be approaching this idea. A worldview consists of a set of assumptions that a person holds about reality. It is, it is sort of like a lens through which we understand and interpret everything around us. One of the best definitions that I've seen comes from a book by James Sire called The Universe Next Door. And Sire has provided what I think is a very helpful definition of worldview and a definition that has impacted others as well. He defines worldview in this way in The Universe Next Door. He says, a worldview is a commitment a fundamental orientation of the heart that we hold about the basic constitution of reality and that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. Now, that's a rather long definition. He's packing a lot of information into that definition. I'd highly recommend that you uh, get the book or even look it up online. The the definition is is, uh, readily available. But I want to point out a couple elements of this definition, unpack it just a little bit, and then point out its connection to scriptural teaching. So there are a couple elements of this definition that I think are important for us to recognize. First, central to this definition of worldview is that it is a fundamental orientation of the heart. I think that's really essential. It's not, first and foremost, what we believe in our minds. That, that's our theology. That's something separate. A worldview is a fundamental orientation of the heart. There's another author that writes helpfully about this, David Noggle, and he has suggested that what philosophers today call worldview is essentially equivalent to the biblical concept of the heart, When we read the word heart in scripture, sometimes we just think in terms of emotion. But heart in biblical usage is far more than that, and that is what David Noggle is pointing out. And Noggle suggests that the biblical idea of the heart is essentially what we mean when we talk about worldview. He says this, As the image and likeness of God, people are animated subjectively from the core and throughout their being by that primary faculty of thought, affection, and will, which the Bible calls the heart. That's what Sire means by worldview, a fundamental orientation of the heart. Noggle points out that in both the Old and New Testaments, the idea of the heart refers to the central defining element of a human person. And so, while the philosophical concept of worldview is a relatively recent philosophical development, what Noggle points out is that what the heart is and what the heart does in a biblical way is what philosophers were getting at unconsciously in coining the word worldview. And so, worldview, as I mentioned, is not primarily a set of ideas or beliefs. That's our theology. 
Rather, a worldview involves the innate inclinations at the core of who we are. And that leads to a second important characteristic of worldview in Sire's definition. A worldview is a set of assumptions, and it is a set of assumptions about the basic constitution of reality. Since worldview is not primarily stated beliefs, but rather an orientation of the heart, These assumptions about reality are not usually stated or held explicitly. In other words, most people don't even know that they have these assumptions. Rather, these sorts of assumptions become formed within us, often without any conscious intention. Another word for this is what sometimes philosophers and theologians have called the moral imagination an inner image of the world. Everything that we encounter in this life filters through and is interpreted by this inner image, our imagination of the world or our worldview. And James Sire in his book provides the kinds of filters, the kinds of of questions that form presuppositions that lie at the core of our worldview. Things like, what is prime reality? What is really real? Everyone has assumptions about that. Or, what is the nature of external reality, the the world around us? Or, what is a human being? Or, what happens to a person at death? Or, Or, why is it possible to know anything at all? Or, how do we know what is right and wrong? These are assumptions that all people have, whether they know it or not. And these assumptions have been formed within us throughout the entirety of our lives. Now, in evaluating our worldview... We can ask these sorts of questions. We can state these sort of assumptions, and we can consciously and intentionally assess and even change our assumptions. We can reorient our hearts. But we have to remember that in the normal course of life, as I mentioned, most people don't really give careful reflection to these sorts of questions. Most people don't really evaluate their assumptions. They don't evaluate their worldview. Rather, these innermost assumptions about reality, assumptions that orient the core of our being, are naturally formed within us very early in life based on what we experience in the environments in which we grow. And so a worldview often develops subconsciously. We don't recognize it unless we intentionally reshape our worldview based on other factors. And so this moves then to to a third important element of Sire's definition, and that is, it is the heart orientation of our worldview that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. The inner image of the world that is formed within us, our moral imagination, interprets reality and so affects how we evaluate and respond to what we encounter. It is what motivates us to move and act in certain ways within the various circumstances of our lives. And this is exactly why the Bible commands, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Now, I want to talk more in a moment about how we as Christians then should, should intentionally work to shape and orient our hearts. But this is also a, an idea that's expressed in hymnody. And one hymn that I think expresses this rather well is the familiar hymn, Be Thou My Vision, a favorite hymn of many. You probably are familiar with the hymn, an old Irish hymn. But I want to spend a moment talking about how we typically sing this hymn 
and suggest an alternative way, an alternative version of this hymn that actually, I think, strengthens the original Old Irish parallelism in the text. The original Old Irish hymn was written in the 8th century, and it was written in Old Irish, which is a a language foreign to our modern English. But in the Old Irish version, each line of the entire hymn begins with the Old Irish word rop. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not exactly sure. But it's an Old Irish word that means be. And that's how our even our modern English version starts. Be thou my vision. Well, that, that word be in Old Irish is frequent throughout the original Old Irish version. It's the beginning of every line of the poem, and it's throughout the poem as well. And the reason for that repetition is is that it it gives us attention to directly addressing God and asking him to be to us various things. Be Lord, be our all, be our best thought, be our light, our wisdom, our word, etc. And so, and so in that repetition of that word, the original author poetically emphasizes our need of him and, and what he is for us. Well, in 1905, Mary Byrne translated that old Irish poem fairly literally into English. And when she did that, she retained that poetic parallelism. However, about 10 years later, in 1912, Eleanor Hull versified Burns' translation so that it could be sung. She put it in in hymn form. But when she did that, Hull failed to retain the frequent repetition of B. And Hull's version is the one that we, at least in America, typically sing. You'll recognize this. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. That's how we typically sing it. And you can hear the word be only occurs as the first word of the stanza. Whereas again, in the original, it would have started every line of almost every stanza. Well, there is another version of Hull's versification. There's another version that I think does a better job of retaining the sort of incessant cry for the Lord to be to us what we need. Listen to how this version reads. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Be all else but not to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night, both waking and sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom, be thou my true word. Be thou ever with me, and I with thee, Lord. Be thou my great father, and I thy true son. Be thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Be thou my breastplate, my sword for the fight. Be thou my whole armor, be thou my true might. And it continues with that kind of repetition of be. You can see how it retains that parallelism and just that repetition reflects well our heart cry to the Lord that he be for us what we need. So I'd encourage you to take a look at this version. It's available for free download at classichymns.org. This is the version of the hymn that we chose to use in Hymns to the Living God since it better communicates our constant repetitious need of God to be for us what we need him to be, to shape and mold our lives. And that's what we need for him to be, especially because of what we've been talking about in terms of worldview. We need God to shape our image of the world. We need him literally to be 
our vision. And of course, the ultimate way for that to happen is for us to immerse ourselves in God's word. God has given us his inspired word as the ultimate shaper of our theology, our beliefs, to be sure. We recognize that but also as a shaper of our moral imagination, a shaper of our hearts, a shaper of our image of the world, a shaper of our worldview. And that is why we need to regularly immerse ourselves in the scriptures. And I want to let you know about a new book that has just been published that I hope will help families, individuals, that will help all Christians be able to do this, to immerse ourselves in, in, the, in the stories and poetry of Scripture such that both our theology and our worldview will be shaped. Just last week, I released a book entitled Tune My Heart, Bible Narratives Devotional Guide for Families or Individuals. Uh, a number of years ago, because I wanted to help my children immerse themselves in Scripture, I developed what I call the five-day Bible narrative reading plan, uh, as well as a 52-week catechism, and it was a way to help my children, and our family has been using this now for a couple years, read through the Bible, not the entirety of Scripture, because that was a little bit too much for my young children, but specifically to read through all of the narratives and poetry, Psalms and Proverbs, in the course of the year. And along the way, I began to write some study notes to help them understand what they were reading, and I began to post those on religious affections. And so I decided to put this in book form. And now the reading plan, the study notes, the I developed reflection questions, the catechism, uh, a weekly Bible memory verse, and then weekly hymn, all of these now are conveniently published in one 359-page volume. This book is really perfect for anyone who wants to slow down and, and focus Bible reading and study on the narratives and poetry of Scripture, but it's especially helpful for children. As I mentioned, our family has been using this plan for a couple years now, including our older two children, and, and we love it. The, the book is also perfect for parents. If you want to lead your children through the reading plan, but, but you don't have time to sort of research for yourself all the more challenging interpretive issues to kind of help them understand what they're reading, that's exactly what the study notes are for. They're intentionally designed to give you basic interpretive help on each day's reading in the plan. And again, the whole purpose behind this is that our theology and our hearts, our worldview, be shaped by the Word of God. Worldview is shaped in many ways. And one of the most significant events, philosophical movements in the history of Western civilization that has dynamically changed the way worldview in the West has been shaped and formed was the 18th century Enlightenment. This age of reason essentially created a worldview without God. The Enlightenment elevated reason over faith, and it forced Christians to wrestle through understanding the appropriate biblical relationship between those two ideas. Christians before the Enlightenment did not consider reason to be the ultimate and independent authority. For Christians, God's revelation is the supreme authority by which all ideas must be judged. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians prior to the Enlightenment rejected reason. 
No, Christians acknowledged reason as a God-given tool that allows people to judge whether or not an idea or a belief corresponds to reality. That is, whether a belief is or is not true. God has given us reason for that purpose. For example, Abraham believed and obeyed God even though he did not know where he was going. Hebrews 11.8. But it was perfectly reasonable for Abraham to believe God. Believing in God didn't go contrary to reason. It was reasonable for Abraham to believe God if reason is defined as a faculty of human cognition that allows a person to judge whether something is true or dependable. And God is certainly true and dependable, so it is perfectly reasonable to believe God. And so Christians understand, that's reason, by faith. Hebrews 11.3. God created the universe and everything in it, and that includes both what is material and immaterial. He rules all things in his universe, and in him all things hold together. All things exist and function on the basis of God's creation and rule of all things, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And these truths alone implicitly ensure the absolute reasonableness of the Christian faith. If reason is the faculty by which a person determines whether or not an idea corresponds with reality, and if God is the creator and ruler of reality, then all that God has said is self-attestingly reasonable. It is reasonable by virtue of the fact that he said it. In fact, Unbelief is inherently irrational. Because God created all things and because all people are made in the image of God, God has already revealed himself to all people. All people know God, as Romans 1 teaches. Romans 1 teaches that that the reasons for God are plain in what he has made. They are clearly perceived. Reason, biblically understood, leads to a belief in these things because the very laws of logic themselves depend for their existence upon the reality of the Christian God. But, as Romans 1 teaches, all people suffer from the effects of sin. And so, this is why Romans 1 teaches that even though reason for God is clearly perceived in what he has made, All people, because of their depravity, suppress this plain knowledge of God. They suppress the plain knowledge of true reality. All people are born doubting what is really self-evident and what is really rational. All people are born with an innate sinfulness that shapes the inclinations of their hearts, their worldview, their image of reality. For Christians, reason is not the foundation or source of faith, but rather reason is an instrument of faith. And this is an important distinction that can give Christians confidence that what we believe is true. But it also ensures that we honor the Lord as holy, as 1 Peter 3.13 says, in affirming the supreme authority of God's revelation in our worldview and, consequently, in our entire lives. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. 
Please subscribe on iTunes and other podcasting services. And if you enjoy this podcast, please give us a rating and share with your friends on social media. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.